0: Hello, I'm Rachel Babin from the Oncology Network. Welcome to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point series. What is ovarian tissue cryopreservation and what role does it play in oncofertility? What are the main changes to the COSA Fertility Guidelines? How hopeful can we be that young people facing a cancer diagnosis can access the latest fertility preservation technologies? How do we reach marginalised groups such as rural patients, gender diverse and transitioning patients? In today's episode, I explore the fascinating world of oncofertility with Associate Professor Antoinette Anazudu and Associate Professor Kate Stern. Antoinette is a medical oncologist and Director of Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer at Sydney Children's Hospital in Randwick and the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney. Kate is the Head of Reproductive Services and Head of the Endocrine and Metabolic Service at the Royal Women's Hospital Melbourne and Clinical Director and Head of Clinical Research at Melbourne IVF. And just a reminder to access all our free podcasts, including our popular series on diagnostics called Beyond the Slide, registered healthcare professionals are invited to join the Oncology Network. Head over to oncologynetwork.com.au to find out more. It's free and only takes a moment. This is Rachel Bavin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. Hi, Kate. Hi, Antoinette. Welcome to the show. Hi.
1: Hi. Thanks for having us.
0: Pleasure. Now, before we get started, I always like to ask a personal question, if I may, so the listeners can get to know you better. Kate, we'll start with you if we can. Did you always know that you wanted to specialize in gynecology?
2: No, not at all. It's one of those funny things in life, you know, when you just fall into things and then it seems to happen and then it just moves from there. I was just doing general jobs at the local hospital where I was working and I did a term in gynecology and I loved it and I chatted to the people and they said, well, why don't you come and do a year and then I went and did a year and... I'd just grown from then. So it was very unplanned, like most other aspects of my professional life, really very unplanned. And then jumping into reproductive medicine and fertility was just another one of those things. Oh, well, we'll just try this and see how it goes. And in fact, until we got to fertility preservation, it all just was all happening very randomly. But fertility preservation has been very focused because that's my real passion.
0: And to you, Antoinette, why did you pick Pediatrics and AYA?
1: Well, when I was training, I was at a hospital called the Middlesex, which had the first what they call teenage cancer units, and I just absolutely loved the combination of doing oncology and working with young people, and so I've been fortunate to have a slightly different pathway, so I did some paediatric oncology, and then I went on and did adult training. Uh, so that could specifically work with young people aged between 12 in the UK and in Australia, it's slightly older to 25. Thank you. So on to
0: oncofertility now. Kate, can you please talk us through your research into ovarian tissue cryopreservation? I understand you're in a study with around a thousand samples?
2: Yes, so oncofertility obviously means the relationship between fertility and oncology and we've been very interested in our unit for many years in the risks of cancer treatment to patients in terms of their fertility and In the mid-90s, patients and their families were coming to us saying, I'm going to, or my daughter's going to, or my cousin's going to have cancer treatment, and they've said it's going to damage fertility. What can we do? And so we had some really, really fascinated scientists who were really on the ball who said, well... You know, we've just read a bit about freezing ovarian tissue. I think we should have a go at this in a research setting. So really in the mid-90s, we started freezing ovarian tissue. So we did small procedures, laparoscopies, and took a piece of tissue and did lots of research in mice and managed to see that when you took the tissue and you froze it and it thawed out and you grafted it into the mice, we could make viable eggs And since that time, we've taken ovarian tissue from well over a thousand women and girls. And we've now also taken tissue from at least over 200 young boys, pre-pubertal boys. So we have a big tissue bank and our scientists have done quite a lot of work trying to Make sure that we can be optimistic about the tissue working. And we're very lucky now because we've done 47 grafts and we've had 12 births so far with two more on the way. So that's pretty exciting. We had our first birth in 2013. That was after nine years of slogging to try and get there. (laughs) And in fact, our first patient ended up having, I think 10 or 11 embryos transferred before we had the pregnancy. So it's been a long hard slog to get there with lots of research in animals and lots of mm. amazing patients prepared to try this without any guarantees.
0: It must have been a very exciting day for you after such a long time you? <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> when you heard the, the safe arrival. We think our patient was more calm than we were on the day I must say. <laughs> (laughs) she said I always knew it was going to work and we're sort of going oh my god it's worked now that you've completed the study we know it works
0: is it available in Australia now
2: so ovarian tissue cryopreservation was deemed experimental around the world until about Mm. three years ago but there have been over 170 reported births and actually probably over 200 births just not all reported in the literature. And around the world, the colleges and the guidelines that provide education and provide guidance on how to manage these patients now all say that it's not experimental in post-pubertal girls. So it's still experimental in prepubertal girls and it's still mm-hmm. experimental in boys. But as you can imagine for pre-pubertal girls and boys who have had their gonadal tissue cryopreserved they're not adults yet so we're not ready to be able to put the tissue back and prove it but it was very exciting that it's not deemed experimental now and around the world it is available but it's quite specialized so it's available in some centers it's not Mm -hmm. like going to the dentist and having a tooth pulled. There are really highly specialized centers with highly specialized laboratories so around the world it is available
0: so people are listening now and perhaps they have a patient they might want to refer or even a family member, would the patient need to come to see you in Melbourne or can it be done in other centres?
2: Well, we're very good at telehealth since COVID and that's mm-hmm. really transformed our medical practice and so we consult with patients really from all over the world. There are websites that have information and I'm sure you'll be able to link those Patients should really talk to their oncologist and then ask their oncologist who are the reproductive doctors that they work with and work from there. But yes, we, like the other specialized centers, are really happy to have conversations with everyone.
0: Well, fantastic. Congratulations. It must be very heartening after such a long road
2: to finally <laughs> get very long some road. good news. Yes. <laughs>
0: Antoinette, I'd like to bring you in now, if I may. With advances like cryopreservation being available, COSA have updated the guidelines on fertility preservation. So, could you talk us through the main changes there?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, the updates for the guidelines now includes patients of all ages. So initially these were guidelines for young adults and adults. These are now guidelines for children. And I would say they're very holistic guidelines that talk about fertility preservation in the concept of survivorship. So we know that we have to start thinking about patient survival At the time of diagnosis, so it talks about the referral program, the options for fertility preservation depending on gender, depending on age, puberty status, and then it talks about the follow-up that patient needs and the reproductive follow-up that patients should have when they complete therapy. And there's some information about menstrual cycle for females, endocrine and hormone, health and well-being, and then lastly about contraception management for those who don't want to have children and then information for those that do want to have children. So really goes from one end of thinking about fertility to actually having babies. So a very exciting guideline to be part of.
2: Really, one of the amazingly important things that Antoinette has brought into updated guidelines is the more holistic approach. I really want to focus on that because we were really it was a big deficit in our prior guideline that we weren't really talking about our overall reproductive health, sexual health, contraception health, that was age appropriate. And Antoinette really brought us up in this recent update to include this really important area of reproductive health because we had really been focusing hardline on fertility and Antoinette and her team really have helped us to broaden this to be much more holistic and talking about overall reproductive health. Excellent.
0: Thank you. Now, Antoinette, talking about the more holistic elements, do you think there's enough psychosocial support for patients during this really challenging period of their lives, particularly when we're thinking about children and these very grown-up considerations such as fertility?
1: Yeah. Look, I think it's an area that we need to do some more work on. We know that at the time of a cancer diagnosis or a relapse period, it's a very stressful time for patients, their parents for the younger ones, partners, family members. And there's a lot of things that as cancer clinicians, we have to let patients know. So you've got the diagnosis, the workup, the discussion about treatment. And somehow we have to get in all the stuff about toxicity management. So it's not just fertility preservation. It's Mm -hmm. cardiac health, lung health, endocrine health. And so one of the challenges that we have is how do we make that possible in a timely fashion so that we are not delaying fertility preservation and that's really key and two how can we ensure that we don't cause any distress either by the process of talking about fertility or the process of not talking about fertility and we know that Mm. currently internationally less than 50% of patients have a discussion with their oncologist about future fertility. We know that 25% of patients are told about fertility preservation by a family member or a friend. And so there's a bit of work to be done. And I think the key is our clinical nurse consultants and our allied health professionals. And in both cancer medicine And reproductive medicine, they are really strong collaborative partners and colleagues in the process of supporting patients. And so we need to ensure that patients have the opportunity to have that guidance.
0: Yes, they're very sobering statistics.
1: Absolutely. You can see in centres like the centre Kate and I work in, you know, a lot more patients have access to fertility preservation. In both centres, close to all the patients that are diagnosed will have a discussion and a referral. But we want to ensure that all patients in Australia are given that opportunity. And so the first part of that project was Ensuring people know about it, the education piece for oncologists, hematologists and health professionals across that spectrum. That's one piece. The second piece is developing services and the model of care so that we can ensure that patients are referred in a timely manner any day of the week. So that's number two. And the third is the support. So we know that it's a very challenging time for all patients and so the opportunity to be supported is important to ensure that we get this right for patients. And the fourth
2: bit, Antoinette, is the data collection because we have to make sure that we get accurate data on who is being referred and what treatment they're having so that we can get good epidemiological data. And so we know how much we've got to improve and who's getting access and where they live. And Antoinette set up this international database. So that's really important for us is getting our data collection because that will help inform new programs.
1: I think that's right because at the moment we know the patients that have an intermediate or a high risk of being infertile and we know that those that have no risk or a low risk, but what we don't know is those patients who are new novel therapies, so the small molecules, the immunotherapy, and what the future holds for those patients. When we think about this type of medicine now in oncology, we know that the patients who are successfully treated with novel agents often end up taking small doses but very frequently and may go on to continue to take these drugs for a long period of time. And so the challenge for us with our research is looking at short-term and then long-term complications, and we've got a clinical trial that's doing that at the moment. But it's going to take years to really get accurate answers, and so having a registry to look at those questions is really important. So ovarian tissue
0: cryopreservation is a success story then.
1: Are there any other
0: experimental treatments, Antoinette, that you think will have similar potential?
1: I can tell you in our centre, we're doing something called in vitro maturation. So we're looking at how we can take the tissue, so ovarian cryopreservation, but taking that tissue and looking at at the tissue in the laboratory with our embryologists to take out the follicles that may be immature in our pre patients or mature in our post pubertal patients and basically in a test tube mature those up and then store them. I guess the important and the exciting thing about this way of fertility preservation is that for our younger patients, That may be a way of having very, very successful fertility preservation options in the future. And number two, for those patients that can't go through cycles of IVF, either because they're too sick or there's contraindications because of the hormones, this may be a way in which we can do fertility preservation safely and in a timely manner. So that's a very exciting thing for us.
2: Yeah, so in vitro maturation, getting the immature eggs, which in plentiful supply and maturing them outside the body, that's really the holy grail at the moment. Now, we can get from sort of halfway through the process to maturity, but what we really want to be able to do is go right back to the tiny little follicles called primordial follicles, and 90% of the eggs in the ovary are in this very, very immature stage called primordial follicles. And what we really want to do is get that maturation from that very early stage up to the ovary. The other holy grail, which is a real problem, will be a game changer, is being able to make sure that the tissue doesn't have cancer cells. Now, it's fine for most cancers, but for patients with leukemia, there is a risk that if you put that tissue back in that patient... And you'll probably be very successful to make nice embryos and babies, but there is a risk of those cancer cells being in the blood vessels in the tissue. So in vitro maturation would help eliminate that risk, but also we're looking at other strategies to try and cleanse or purge the tissue And an even more interesting concept is the idea of making what we call an artificial ovary. So getting a lattice or a structure or a framework that we can put the follicles and their supporting cells on without the cancer cells and growing the eggs that way, either outside the body or inside the body. So there's a lot of work yet to be done. And I guess The other aspect that we really have to work on, Antoinette started to mention it before, is being able to get the sperm, which are very immature from the testes of young boys, and maturing those sperm into mature sperm, which can fertilize eggs. And that's been done in a monkey, but it hasn't been done in humans yet. So we've got quite a lot of work to do, but all this stuff has this feeling that it's going to be possible in the next few years. So do
0: you feel genuinely quite hopeful for the future
2: that young people who have faced
0: a cancer diagnosis will go on and have healthy babies?
2: Absolutely. You know, when we started taking the tissue 20 years ago, we were saying to the patients, look, we don't know if this is going to work. Some animal studies suggest it will, but it's a big leap of faith. And I feel, and I think Antoinette does too, very much that we're going to have better technologies that are safer for patients, more efficient but also that we're going to look after these patients better in all aspects so that actually it's not going to be this double whammy of cancer and then infertility and the double trauma. So I'm very optimistic that we have now talking more about the other aspects of it and doing lots of research. I'm very, very excited.
1: I would agree with that. I think we could divide it into two halves. The first is in Australia – and around the world, we had to do a significant amount of work to give cancer patients opportunities to therapies that actually were freely available. And, you know, IVF therapies have been around for more than 40 years. And with utilizing the expertise and knowledge of people like Kate, though, so having models of care, having pathways, having collaborations has been really important and over the last five years we've really shown how we've gone from less than 10% to more than 50% of patients having access. The challenge I think for us now is one to ensure that we go from 50% to as close to 100% as possible and the second part is how do we ensure that patients have access to research as well? Because when patients do have access to research, not only does it improve their opportunities, but I think that patients actually, you know, value being included and feel that it's really hopeful the oncologist or the hematologist is making this referral they think that you know I'm going to be a survivor they're thinking about my future and I think that's what we want we want to ensure that all patients with a chance of survival have an opportunity to have a biological child in the future if that's what they want. I always really enjoy
0: having different perspectives on the show, and it's nice to have you both here to talk together. So with that in mind, I wondered, Antoinette, if you had any questions for Kate?
1: I mean, the good thing about Kate and I, apart from being really good friends now, is that we have come from very different perspectives, and that has really challenged us. So I guess my question to Kate would be, how does she think we can improve the communication of... Fertility risk by cancer clinicians?
2: It's very difficult, isn't it? Because the statistics are always based on the past, long term studies. You know, to assess fertility, you've got to do studies over many, many, many years. We've got a few biomarkers, but they're not fantastic. And so we're always behind the April. I think, in relation to what you're asking, Antoinette, one thing is that making sure that all cancer drug research includes basic animal fertility studies the other thing is with our patients we really as you know they appreciate us just giving them the best information that we have and so I think through databases and through registries and through post-marketing information we can just give our patients sometimes we can't give them any better to than high risk or low risk and Antoinette raised a very important point Our patients aren't all going to want the same thing. And so for some patients of being told they have a very low risk, but it is a risk of losing their fertility is just enormous and they really want to do everything. Whereas for some patients they say, well, I'm just happy to see how it goes. So I think we need to make sure we've got the best information, but we also have to keep the interactions personal. Now there are some fantastic risk calculators available available and decision aids. But we've got to all make sure that we make enough time to have the conversation with our patients at an individual level, I think, to make sure that each patient has the time and the information to make their own decision. And also to know the consequences of their decisions, that there will always be other options in the future.
0: Did you have a comment you wanted to add there, Antoinette?
1: Constant communication, being open to new ideas, and hopefully, you know, getting the word out about the guidelines is going to prove to be really useful.
0: Yes, we'll make sure we include a link on the show notes to the guidelines. Now, Kate, did you have a question for Antoinette?
2: We talk about this a lot, usually at about midnight, but (laughs) I always rely on you to give us advice about how we can educate the healthcare professionals, including the oncologist, the hematologists, and the support staff so that the information that we can give is referable. Well, there's a patient has their GP and their primary healthcare physicians and then they have their oncologist and hematologist and that's the first time that this sort of stuff is going to be talked about and it's complicated. I mean the trauma of a young patient finding out that they have a diagnosis of cancer and how you're going to treat it and the risks of the treatment and then the long-term risks. And fertility is only one of them. And I think you guys are amazing in prioritising fertility because 20 years ago patients weren't told, the doctors just wanted to cure their cancer and there was no other conversation. So we've come an enormous distance. And so I'm always looking to you for guidance on how best to engage as a profession, with your colleagues to make them enthusiastic and to make it easier for them to be able to talk to their patients. And I think, as you said, having your nurse navigators and nurse practitioners just being able to provide services that make it not a burden to actually have to talk about fertility but to make it a positive part of the patient encounter.
1: Look, I think there's a couple of things. I think, as we said, knowledge is a key factor. And to that extent, I think having models of care, which means that each cancer centre makes it a priority to, No. Well, what is it we do when a cancer patient comes from a fertility preservation point of view? Sitting down, working out who the partners are going to be in terms of our fertility specialists, how that will work for males and then females, and then how that will work for younger patients and older patients because, you know, there's more than one thing you have to think about. Now, the model of care is undoubtedly going to be different in different centres. Our rural centres have different things to think about to our metropolitan centres. Our private and public hospitals have different things to think about. And so I think individually every cancer centre needs to know what that model of care is because once you've got that working, you see a significant increase in the referrals to fertility specialists. There's no doubt about that. And I think then that's the model, model care one, the education piece two. And then the third is ensuring that the implementation of the model of care is is working and is consistent. And it's important to know in healthcare, we know that every three to six months, we get new junior doctors, we get new junior nurses, we get people leaving. And so the constant re-education of staff is going to be really critical, so that we don't sort of forget that this is what we do. And that's why I think having nurses, uh, clinical nurse consultants, uh, allied health professionals being part of the referral pathway and model of care because they're often the consistent person in the team. Well, thank you both. That's
0: been really enlightening. And now, just before we wrap up, Kate, you mentioned some risk calculators and decision aids, so we can link to those in the show notes. Were there any other resources that you'd like to mention?
2: Antoinette's Future Fertility website and the Encro Fertility Registry has amazing patient information. And we have done some videos and some people in our team have linked with the Cancer Care Australia to do some amazing videos and they really just introduce the concept of fertility preservation for young patients. They're really great. And also there are some educational videos on ovarian tissue and also our national transport process, which is really important because patients in rural and regional centers don't have access to this high level technology of the tissue. Freezing, and so we've now got a
1: national transport service called the NOT service. We want to make sure that we're reaching all populations. So, thinking through our core population, our LGBTQI population, and our rural population. So, we really want to make fertility preservation
2: accessible to everyone who needs it. So, that can be patients in rural areas. That can be very, very young patients. That can be patients who are transitioning and that can be patients who have non cancer conditions, but other conditions that are going to affect their fertility. Oncofertility, it's not just about cancer and fertility. It's about any condition really where fertility is compromised. And we're seeing more and more referrals, particularly from our transitioning people. And it's a particularly traumatic area that we need to develop some extra skills and resources for because these patients are very marginalized in so many aspects of their life. And if you're rural English isn't your first language and you're in a gender diverse population, you're really, you know, we've got a lot of work to be able to provide the best support for you when we're really working on that.
0: Thank you. Yes, a lot of inequities still to be challenged. Antoinette, were there any resources that you wanted to mention that listeners might find helpful?
1: Yeah, like Kate said, the Future Fertility website has information sheets for all ages of patients. And I've also, whenever I've seen a good resource, either from Australia or internationally, we've asked permission for them to be linked on our website. So there's a page which has things from Canteen, from Cancer Council, from the Melanoma Institute, from the Breast Cancer Care. We've tried to bring them all together in one place. So that people can or patients and their family members can have a look at what's specific to them in terms of their age, their particular type of cancer and the situation in life. So it may be new diagnosis, you're looking for information about fertility preservation or it might be a patient who's a cancer survivor looking at managing contraception or thinking about having a baby.
0: Oh, fantastic. So it sounds like a really good hub of all sorts of different resources. So thank you.
1: Any last
2: comments or final thoughts? Well, I think we're just grateful to you, Rachel, for contacting us to be part of your fantastic Oncology Network podcast series. I think it's amazing that patients and their families and healthcare professionals They don't necessarily find things in the formal literature. They hear about things in podcasts or talking to people or on the television. And so we're really grateful for the opportunity to help spread the word. So thanks very much. Thank
0: you. It's an absolute pleasure. It's been a really nice half an hour chatting with you ladies, learning more about what you do. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast's Experts on Point Series. Brought to you by The Oncology Network. To hear more podcast episodes, head over to our oncology portal at www.oncologynetwork.com.au. Registration is free for healthcare professionals and we'll give you access to exclusive content such as our fantastic diagnostic series, Beyond the Slide. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your colleagues. This is Rachel Babin and this is The Oncology Podcast.